Welcome to the Pet Industry Podcast, connecting you with the people behind the passion, the leading experts in the pet industry. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Sprinkle. And I'm your other host, Dr. Mary Cope. Welcome to the Pet Industry Podcast, where we at BSM Partners take you behind the scenes of the pet industry. BSM Partners has dozens of pet experts, including a research team. That research team performed a massive study answering some of the toughest and controversial questions in pet nutrition. We will be sharing some episodes where we have the researchers take us behind the scenes of their important research and help us understand what the research means for us and our pets. So today we are joined by the BSM research team, including our resident microbiome expert, Dr. Stephanie Clark, veterinarian, Dr. Brad Quest, board-certified veterinary nutritionist, Dr. Renee Streeter, and PhD nutritionist, Dr. Sydney McCauley. Doctors Clark and McCauley are also both board-certified companion animal nutritionist. We are also excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Andrea Beal, a geneticist and founder of EpiPause, an epigenetic biomarker company for pets, creating the next generation of pet healthcare. Dr. Beal can show a unique perspective on the research and the role genetics and epigenetics play on gut health for pets. All right. So I am very excited to have members of the research team from BSM Partners, as well as our guest, Andrea. And so today we are going to dive into some current research as in very recently published, which is really exciting that you can hear it from the researchers themselves. And I think when it comes down to it, we're all pet owners. And when you have a pet, one of the most common questions that you're going to have is, what is the right food to feed my pet? And interesting enough, this has become a very complicated question in today's time, and it attracts many different opinions. So to help with this complexity and look at it from a scientific approach, we are going to look at some research that might help us get to the bottom of that. With the researchers here of the study, we are going to dive into their publication that was published in the Journal of Animal Science. And then we have our guest, Dr. Andrea Beal, who looks at DNA, gene expression, which is epigenetics, which will probably have you give a really nice elevator speech on that one, <laughs> which I'm sure you've had to define many times. And she's also the, an entrepreneur and founder of EpiPause. So we're very happy to have you, Dr. Neal, and bring your very unique perspective to this very interesting research. We would like to understand like why you even started doing this research. So from the research team, what got you to even be interested in doing this particular study? We go back to the beginning, back in 2019. It's when BSM started to get involved in the DCM, grain-free, grain-inclusive communications. What was going on? It was affecting the industry. It was affecting pet parents. It was affecting farmers, retailers, distributors. It was a huge shift. And so part of being researchers, we wanted to figure out what was going on. And after a lot of conversations and collaboration with the FDA, BSM Partners put together a very large study and our funding and fundraising efforts began. 
I remember telling our founder, Nate Thomas, that he was crazy for doing a study this big. It was very expensive. I was unsure if we were going to be able to even pull it off. But with our fundraising efforts and because we are in an industry where so many people care about pets, we had some amazing fundraising efforts. Um, And so we're actually doing this really big study and it is the biggest um, and definitely the most expensive prospective study ever done on canine nutrition. So this is only just a small portion of our larger study. And this is going to focus on the fecal metabolites, the microbiome, lovely short-chain fatty acids, and most pet parents are concerned with digestion of their pet's food. And these questions came about is, are there other things that could be affecting our pet other than just the ingredient in the diet? So looking at the microbiome, does that change? Do we have a shift in the microbiome that could potentially be dangerous and lead to some cardiac issues? So that's why we looked at the microbiome. We looked at digestibility. There had been some papers and some speculation out there that grain-free or high plant protein diets are less digestible due to the fiber makeup just naturally in those ingredients. And so are we potentially feeding non or lower digestible diets just by the makeup? And then we also wanted to look at fiber content. There was a paper in the past that had looked at fiber in these pulses and legumes, so our peas, lentils, and chickpeas. And does that fiber tie up and conjugate taurine and potentially lead to a taurine deficiency? We didn't look at that in this particular paper that is just published, but stay tuned. Exciting information to come as that paper is in the review process. And then lastly, short-chain fatty acids are what we feeding our dog, really feeding their gut and keeping that healthy gut which we know is becoming more connected to, or at least we're more aware of the connection it is with the immunity, the skin, the brain, the gut, connecting to even the kidneys. So this study is just a fraction of what we did, but it's really focusing on the digestibility, the effect on the microbiome and fecal metabolites and short-chain fatty acids when we're feeding diets that are either what is now called pulse-rich, so containing a few pulses, or pulse-free or grain-inclusive, and then also looking at the amount of animal protein. As most pet parents are aware, that the push for more meat in pet food is very popular. Meat first, real meat is a very popular trend. And is it, is it beneficial? Or is it, it doesn't really matter where your nutrients are coming from as long as they're there. You mentioned the term digestibility several times, and I know that we throw out that term quite a bit, but I think it might be good to, to break down what digestibility really is and why it's important. And so I'm going to throw this one over to Dr. Brad because you look at digestibility a lot. (laughs) So when you are having to explain what it is and why it's important to look at for our pets, how do you explain that? Yeah, that's a really good question, Megan. When we're talking about digestibility, you want to think of it in the terms of 
what kind of nutrition is actually available to the pet? And we use the word bioavailable, and some folks may not fully understand what that is, but that's what it's referring to pretty much all pet food. They're formulated by highly qualified, highly educated, well-versed folks in their field. They know what they're doing to formulate the pet food. And then we usually take it a step further in that we do analysis of those pet foods, meaning we look at the actual levels of protein, specific amino acids, vitamins, minerals, things that we know are necessary for our pet on a, on a daily basis. And pets are unique when you think about it as opposed to humans. Most humans, we eat a pretty diverse diet. You may not necessarily get all your required nutrients in one day, but the odds are the next day you'll eat something different or later in that day. Whereas a lot of our pets eat the same diets, even though we may vary those a little bit. For the most part, they're eating a lot of the same diets, which makes it exceptionally important to make sure that everything that's in those diets are available, that the pet's able to utilize their bodies, able to digest, process, absorb, and then assimilate, meaning use those nutrients in the way they're intended to just for normal body function, normal life functions. So what we want to do then is actually test those diets. It's not a really hard study to do. We can analyze the diets for specific nutrients, and then we feed those same diets to pets over a specified time. Usually it's a time period of about 10 days. And then what we do is we collect the stool and we can also analyze the stool for a lot of those same nutrients. And really through calculation, we can determine how much of those nutrients are actually being utilized by the pets. And we'll have standards that we like to see for certain diets. We like to see a certain percent digestibility, but it makes a difference as far as what the diet formats are. Dr. Clark mentioned earlier, ash and fiber content. Ash is mostly just the minerals in the diet. And then of course, fiber, there's different types of fiber and a lot of them are very beneficial for nutritional health. Some types of fibers though, if they get too high, can negatively impact digestion too. So a lot of it depends on the diet format, but these are things that, that we do them for the diets that we formulate for our clients. And we recommend that pet food manufacturers do these types of studies as well. I'm starting to understand why you guys call this the fecal paper because I bet you had to look at poop quite a bit <laughs> for this study, not only for digestibility, but correct me if I'm wrong, you, that's probably how you looked at the microbiome <laughs> as well. It was looking at poop samples. Is that correct? Or is there a different way to that you looked at the microbiome? No, we looked at the fecal microbiome. I always make a joke that nutritionists really just spend their day looking at poop. We have lovingly nicknamed this paper the fecal file. Yes, this makes very good sense, I think, to now understanding a little bit more into the digestibility, why it's important and why we will look at different diet types, maybe even in the ingredients, if that was the concern at the time to see, does this impact the digestibility of the food so that the pets obviously can get the nutrients they need for all functions, including heart health as well. And Dr. Andrea, when we were talking earlier this week, you were talking about looking at different ways that 
might impact how genes are turned on and off. So maybe an opportunity to explain a little bit about what epigenomics is, but also just initially hearing the problem that these researchers were looking at. Do you have any initial reactions and maybe some experience that you have, maybe even on the people side too? Yeah, definitely. Starting with epigenetics and what that is exactly. With epigenetics, we study different mechanisms and molecules that actually interact with the DNA sequence, and they usually function on turning genes on and off. We tend to see that something in particular, say DNA methylation, which we're very focused on here at EpiPause and studying, acts as basically a first line of defense against everything that changes in the environment. And so that can be an external change, like a temperature change outside, and you're dealing with that and trying to maintain homeostasis, or it could be internally. So something, you eat something, your body's reacting to what you put in it. It's affecting its environment. And so when we talk about the microbiome, there is absolutely this talk between the microbiome and epigenetics, which then affects your genes. So everything is connected and gets complicated really fast. So when I'm thinking about this paper and what was looked at, definitely varying the food source is going to have an effect on the microbiome. And the microbiome has an effect on the epigenetics, which will affect what genes are getting turned on and off. So a lot of wheels turning there. Yeah, back to that, you know, what is the best diet for my pet? So you've got your problem. We understand the importance of digestibility. So what was the study design? What did exactly did you do and look at? So to start the study off, we had to figure out what duration we wanted to do, which we decided on six months. We can always argue, is it long enough? But sometimes money and resources tell us and dictate us to what the duration is going to be. And interestingly, because this paper is, this study is part of so many different aspects that we're looking at, we also have a paper that's coming out, um, was just submitted for publication that will start to answer the question of the duration. Is the duration of the study long enough? And, and we start to feel very, very confident based on the results that we saw for that paper um, that the study is long enough. We used 64 dogs, which is a huge amount of dogs that you have to try and adopt out at the end of the study. We did not want these dogs to go back into the research cycle. So right around the pandemic, trying to find 64 dogs to get good homes that they were going to stay and be happy, loving pets. But out of those 64 dogs, we had two different breeds. We had a mixed breed hound, and it really was mixed breed. And we did genetic testing on them as well, looking at any gene mutations, what breeds they actually made up. And then we had, and those, I'm sorry, I should go back. Those dogs were 50, 75 pounds. So these are your medium, large breed dogs. They were quite big. And especially in comparison to our other breed, which were our purebred beagles. And these are, since they're purebred and purpose-bred, they were our tiny little beagles. Super cute, little 16, 20-pound beagles. Even though they started off at the study beginning a little chunky, we got them into ideal shape. So we had our two breeds, and then we came down to what were going to be our, our test diets. 
And so we essentially did four test diets. We called them lovingly grain-free and grain-inclusive, but essentially lack of pulses and and pulse-rich or high plant protein. But then we also decided to look at the animal protein like we had previously talked about. And we varied the amount of protein coming from animals. So we had a quote-unquote high animal, which was 70% of the protein coming from animal sources. And then we had a low animal, which was 45% of the protein coming from animal sources. The neat thing about these diets is we've actually got people on the call, on the podcast, who formulated these diets, who were in the manufacturing plant, manufacturing them, making them making sure that they were running appropriately. And that's really neat because you get to control the diet as opposed to just picking a bag up off the shelf and hoping the nutrients are in there at appropriate amounts or in the amounts that you want appropriate for the study. So that's really interesting. And then the way we formulated the diets, and and Dr. Streeter can definitely speak more on this, on the hundreds of hours we spent formulating these diets, but we wanted them to match in macronutrients. So a lot of studies will look at ingredients, but we really wanted to look at nutrients. Going back to does the body care where this amino acid or this fatty acid is coming from, or does it just matter that it's there? So we formulated the diets to be as similar as possible. We looked at the raw ingredients and we formulated based off what was actually the nutrients that were naturally occurring in those ingredients. Renee, do you want to jump in and talk a little bit more before I talk about the study design? I think you covered it really well so far, Stephanie. I think the main thing was we really, like Stephanie said, we had a large amount of time devoted to ensuring that the macronutrients of the diets were identical. The ingredients were tested before the formulation for full nutrient analysis, so we were able to get really close. And then what was interesting was that even with all of that testing beforehand and after, there was still slight variation after the diets were formulated. But because we actually tested them and we knew, right, like it wasn't as if we were, like Stephanie said, using a diet off the shelf where you had no idea if you were close. They were really close, but it was just a very interesting process and very well controlled so that we could see what these ingredients were doing while keeping the nutrients the same. What we didn't control for were amino acids. So if the ingredients naturally were lower in some of the sulfur-containing amino acids, then the diet was naturally lower in sulfur-containing amino acids. So macronutrients, so the total protein, the total fat, the total fiber, all of that was kept very similar across the board of these four diets. It's really just like where those nutrients were coming from. So either the higher amounts of animal-based sources or not. So I think it's important to point out that when we're looking at a scientific study, it's really important to keep everything between different treatments as similar as you can. So that way you reduce what's called the variability or the number of things that could be causing a difference in the study outcome. So if you just grab some random dog foods off the shelf and try to compare them, you're not really sure, is it this 
difference in fat that's causing it? Is it the different ingredient? Because there's so many things that are different. Whereas when you have scientists that are able to go in and formulate these diets to be almost exact with the only difference really being that change in the amount of pulse, which are your peas, legumes, chickpeas, versus grain, and then the difference in animal proteins, protein concentrations, you're really able to focus in and say, okay, we saw a difference and it's because of this, because everything else was the same. So that's the importance when it comes to making sure that these treatment diets are very similar. Yeah, you're right, Dr. Cope. And with this study, we had the luxury of knowing the manufacturing facility that they were ran in. They were all run on the same day. And we knew exactly the processing that it took for all of the diets. So we really got to control the nitty gritty details of it. Since you mentioned manufacturing, I'm always fascinated by that part as well. So when we're looking at the different ingredients that you're using, you were there, you watched the process, and you a lot of the people on this call are also formulators that you know from experience to some extent. But when you are looking with these particular ingredients, you mentioned pulses. So that's our lentils or, or peas, things like that. Do they work differently when you are making them all? They're all going to be a kibble at the end of your experiment or your the manufacturing process. But do you find that they they work differently <laughs> when you make it? I can't think of another way of asking that question. So hopefully that it, makes sense. The kibble consistency. Is the kibble consistency like a little different based off of what you use to make it? Or is it harder or easier? Like the whole process. <laughs> yeah. You have to think about that when you're making it. Yeah. Those are really good questions because I think Everybody's talked about the different diets and the differences in the formulas and the similarities or sameness in the actual nutritional values. But then when we talk about processing or the making of those diets can vary a lot too, because in manufacturing, it just makes sense. If you're using different raw ingredients, it might take different changes in the process to make the finished product or the pet food kibble. The good thing about the facility, the manufacturing facility that we use is they have a ton and years and decades of experience in making a lot of different pet food diets. You'd mentioned earlier, a large portion of our team was actually there. So we were able to help them to control the processing to try to ensure that it's all the same. And when we say processing, we're talking about different speeds the equipment runs at, different temperatures in the different parts of the manufacturing process, whether that's actually in the extrusion, which is the part of the process that actually makes the kibble. And then you go to the drying process. You have to dry that kibble out in, in, in an oven and to make sure that those temperatures are controlled for. In other words, try to make those the same. And then when you coat the product with other ingredients like fat and other protein ingredients to make sure that all that process stays the same. So really it's partnering with a really good trusted manufacturing partner that we're really familiar with and we work really well with. And that's how we approach this. And it worked out really well as evidence in the results of our study and the finished product that we were able to feed the dogs for the study. I just want to acknowledge how 
wonderfully qualified this group is. I don't think anybody could quite do this as well as you just from all the experience from the food science, the formulation experience, like the research experience, all of that. I don't know if I really stopped and considered how unique that is, but a lot of people don't have that luxury or availability of all these resources or, or skills. So also going back to the dogs, because I think this will be important, especially with Dr. Andrea, when we ask you some maybe more questions, is back to why did you use two different groups of dogs? You talked about purebred dogs, and then you had these mixed hounds. Why did you decide to add more complexity to the already this, <laughs> this big giant study? We never do anything easy or simple. I'm it up in one sentence. But research beagles are the commonly used dogs just because of availability. And there was some speculation or a hypothesis that are we maybe not seeing this in a research setting, a certain type of diet or certain types of ingredients causing cardiac issues such as DCM, because maybe these breeds are a little bit more robust or prone or, yeah. Genetically resilient. wired. <laughs> yeah. Genetically wired to not getting that disease as quickly or at all. However, it, in my mind, it raises the question, if breed is a question, then can we really isolate dietary issues? But to make sure that we were crossing all our I's, dotting all our T's, we added in a, an, another level of complexity with another breed. Mixed breed dogs is a grab bag of genetics, of breeds. It covers a lot of dogs from small to medium to large to giant. But it seemed with the FDA communications that this mixed breed dog group seemed to be coming to the forefront. Obviously, you, you can't really match mixed breed to mixed breed. Genetics are what they are. But we were able to get mixed breed, larger breed dogs to add that size factor in and not giving away the ending of this exciting podcast, but size and breed did play a role into what we were seeing. So it only dives deeper into individuality, especially when feeding our pets. I can say in our communications with other experts with cardiac health that there are most definitely some breeds that are genetically predisposed to DCM. But I think mixed breeds are like whenever you have a mixed breed, you kind of get a mixed bag. Like you could have fantastic genetics and they never get sick or yeah. you can have every single bad gene expressed in every mix that they're that makes up their little mixed breed. So it's a toss up sometimes of what you're going to get with what I lovingly refer to as the Heinz 57 breeds. I definitely think that by having a big, large group of mixed breeds, that's what you get. You get the mixed bag effect and see like for the general population, does this cause something or not? I know we spent a lot of time outlining the things that like how we set the study up, how we formulated the diets. But then once you got everything all settled, the dogs and their different treatment groups. What did you look at? What kind of data did you collect? And why did you select those things to analyze? I'm going to give you broad categories of things that we looked at for this paper. For this paper, we looked at macronutrient digestibility. So we, again, how was protein, fat, and fiber digested in the various dogs for the various diets? We looked at fecal characteristics, so the quality of their poop, 
and we looked at fecal metabolites. So metabolites are things like short-chain fatty acids, ammonia, indole, senol, bile acids. So we look at these things to get an idea of inflammation, among other things. And we also looked at fecal microbiota or the bacteria that are in the poop to get an idea of the effect of the diet on that population, which could in turn have an effect on digestibility or gut health in general. It seems to me like we spent a lot of time looking at, we spent a lot of time looking at poop and this is called the fecal paper for a reason. But can someone outline how this ties in with DCM? Because it, like you're dealing with digestibility and the gut and how is that playing in and, and interacting with heart health? Dr. McCauley. If you think about it in the really basic terms of, they say you are what you eat, right? In the aspect of we were trying to figure out if what we've known in the literature, for instance, um, that pulses, we have limited amino acids, for instance, in pulse ingredients, grain ingredients, like lysine for grains or methionine for pulses. But we wanted, since they were hitting home, especially for these pulses, how this these ingredients together played a role in digestibility. So this is where the fecal paper comes into play. And how this, the fecal microbiome, all of that made it available, these nutrients available for the animal to digest from the intestines to be available for the body to utilize into different areas. So this fecal paper really tried to start in the beginning of food, essentially, of obviously didn't start at chewing, but we started at what was important of breakdown and where we could find those differences and see how the guts of not just one breed, two different breeds may have different digestibilities and how that could affect the availability of those nutrients that would be available as an energy source. So we wanted to look at that with this paper. And that is the sole purpose is to understand not just heart health with it. That is a good component of why we really started. But us as researchers, I know we can say that, yes, we can say the focus was for heart health, but we really cared like what the overall differences may be. And if we found different things than our original hypothesis, how can we essentially divert that focus and say, oh, this really isn't the issue. What the issue may be is X, Y, and Z, if that occurs. And so that's what I really enjoy about this entire large study was that like we did have one hypothesis, but we have done so much that we are able to answer a lot of questions that we may not have even known we had which I think is great. And it's always great to be able to leverage information across multiple questions. Yes, looking at digestibility can also say, yeah, 
the body was able to get the taurine and the amino acids that the heart needs to function. But also knowing that it's digestible could go to helping with other questions. A lot of times research leads to more questions than it does answers. And so we were trying to answer some of those questions. Do grain-free, pulse-rich diets, are they less digestible and therefore creating deficiencies in these amino acids or sulfur-containing amino acids that we know can really benefit the heart? There's been some papers out there that say, oh, dogs eating this diet are deficient in taurine. So does that truly happen? Is that deficiency happening because there's a decrease in digestibility? Or like Dr. Sidney was saying, are they getting bound up and basically excreted in the poop and not available for the dog? So we were hoping with this study to answer some of those questions that previous papers have left open. I trust that our findings probably revealed some crucial insights. Can one of our researchers share some of the key discoveries from this research, especially in terms of how the results might help answer some of our original questions on pulse versus grain and high animal protein versus low animal protein digestibility? I can jump in on the digestibility part and maybe relate it to some of the manuscripts that have been published by other researchers in related to whether it was related to DCM or just looking at digestibility differences in, in different diets or different diets made with different ingredients. Some of the hypotheses of other research papers have been that some of these high pulse containing grain-free diets, as Dr. Clark had mentioned, had lower digestibilities than say a diet that was made with a grain, a typical grain-inclusive diets. And actually what we found was there was very little difference among the two custom-formulated grain-inclusive diets and the two custom-formulated grain-free diets, which actually aligned with our research team's hypothesis. But I think it, it contributes a lot to looking at digestibilities of different categories of diets. And I should also say, and we had talked about it earlier, that we didn't just pull specific brands from the shelf to do our study. We custom formulated these very meticulously. Dr. Clark, Dr. Streeter, Dr. McCauley, and others worked very diligently to try to ensure that the nutrients in these diets were the same. However, specifically, those nutrients came from distinctly different ingredients, but overall, the digestibilities weren't different. And I know we had mentioned earlier, also one of the interesting factors we saw that we typically had higher digestibilities in the larger dogs compared to the smaller dogs, which was in line with previous research. And we feel like a lot of that's going to be attributed to it's a larger dog. It has a longer digestive tract. It has more opportunity for those nutrients to be absorbed and, and to be utilized. I think one, and it's good to know that all of the diets were met very good digestibility. There wasn't a whole lot of difference between diets, but where the difference lies, back to what you said, was actually the different types of dogs. So there was a difference there. And you started talking about that the fact that they were all digestible, they all were pretty similar in digestibility, was maybe a little bit different than previous studies. You started talking about maybe why, but 
Are, is there anything else that you would want to add to that and why you think your results might be slightly different in that area? Not speaking specifically for other research studies, but we'd hit on it a little bit. We controlled for pretty much everything that we could in this study. I know Dr. Streeter had mentioned earlier, we did nutrient profiles, not only on the diets, but on the ingredients. So we knew exactly every ingredient that went into our diets. We knew exactly what all the nutrient composition was of those individual raw ingredients, which means the finished product is going to be exactly what we think it should be. Now, again, I can't speak for other research studies. Some of them may have controlled for that. Some of them may have not. But really what I think it does a lot is when you do research or some of the retrospective research studies that have been done, more specifically looking at, at dilated cardiomyopathy, but tying it back to brands, brand a or brand B, those researchers can't really control what is in those diets. They can do a nutrient analysis on it, but I don't ever recall any of those studies looking at the digestibility of that. So you could say, hey, we had this group of dogs and they were eating these grain-free pulse-rich diets, but they really don't have any nutrient analysis on those specific diets to know what were the amino acid levels in those diets? Was it, was it actually, was it was what it was supposed to be? Were the protein and fat levels exactly what they were supposed to be? Those retrospective research studies don't really contain that information because it is what it's retrospective. They can only look at data that they had collected and then were able to go back later and try to draw conclusions from it. So I think that's one thing that makes a study like ours unique and probably I'll use the term maybe more valuable to answer questions when you start comparing different diet categories. Again, back to what I was saying about how unique this group of people are and what you're able to do. I think that does speak to that. And then, so we talked about digestibility. What about the microbiome and the other things that you were looking at? What did you find there? This is a really interesting finding because I think it's really interesting. We saw one diet had a significant shift, meaning it was statistically different. And that was our low animal grain-free diet. So one that had lower animal protein and the grain, uh, sorry, and pulse rich. It had a shift in the microbiome. However, it had an increase in the beneficial bacteria within the gut. And this is really interesting to me because usually in, in human medicine and that bleeds over to animals and our pets, usually a shift means something bad that if any deviation from normal could cause an issue. However, with that being said, this shift, this deviation from the dog's normal was more beneficial bacteria, more bacteria that provides short-chain fatty acids, which we've mentioned previously, that feed the gut cells and keep the gut very healthy. Is the shift truly bad if we have an increase in good bacteria? As long as the function of these bacteria are there and all the dogs remained healthy throughout the study, they're still healthy to this day, it leaves you scratching your head. What does this truly mean? And I know previously, Dr. Andrea and I had talked about this with epigenetics and how this can tie in a 
tie in? Is there a threshold or is there individual, a dog can have a shift and then this other dog has a shift and it's completely different. So would love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, definitely. When it comes to the microbiome and these shifts that we talk about and saying that it's, it's shifted away from normal, it, it depends how we're defining normal. I feel like we, we say that this is normal, but do we really know what's, what's good and normal? Could it be multiple versions? And it's actually a communication between what you normally eat and what bacteria are there and covering all the functions that need to be covered. That could be what we should be more focused on than what, who's actually there when <laughs> who's present is more is all the functions there. I think the last really major finding. I think this is really interesting. It's not surprising, but it is, it's looking at things differently. Instead of all good and all bad, there are good things and there are bad things or beneficial things and maybe not most appropriate. We saw that the grain-free pulse-rich diets created a significantly larger amount of short-chain fatty acids in the dogs that were eating those diets. And that really Again, why it's not surprising is the type of fiber found in these pulses. It's fermentable. Our bacteria in our gut love it. They eat it up and they produce these short-chain fatty acids, which in then turn feed our gut and we have a healthy, happy gut. What I think is interesting, going back to the all good, all bad, is previous papers have said these fibers and these pulses and plant-based protein can actually bind up nutrients and cause a lower digestibility. Where we didn't see a change in digestibility in the two types of diets, but we saw an increase in this really beneficial byproduct of our bacteria in our gut. And I also think it's really interesting. We There's a lot of human studies out there that support plant-based proteins in our diet for some of these reasons, but yet we question if it's good in our pets too which this paper is now showing us in pets, we really do see this good outcome of these short-chain fatty acids. So does this help pet owners in any way? Going back to that original question we were asking about, okay, so what do I feed my pet? <laughs> does this help at all when it comes to feeling confident ab about picking a particular food item? For me personally, and, and I'll let the research team and everyone weigh in, to me, this paper demonstrates that it's not just dietary. You cannot isolate a, an ingredient, especially when we controlled for nutrients. And you can't say that a diet is all good or all bad. It's really about the individual. And I feel confident saying that. This paper supports that because we saw the breed difference, the size difference. And so Really thinking about where this leads to the future for me is, can we involve epigenetics into testing if there is an appropriate diet for your dog or your cat, and maybe helping the pet parent make the best selection based on that individual's needs and what genes are being expressed, or potentially even other external factors, like Dr. Andrea was saying, environmental factors. Can we feed the same dog the same diet in the South versus the North versus a different part of the world. If there's other external factors 
that can affect our health and can affect the genes that are being expressed and the phenotypes. You feel the pressure, Dr. Andrea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So and this is where what's really coming to mind here is that it's going to take a while for us to be able to answer that type of question and help a pet parent really understand and make the connection. What is it that caused this? A lot of it is creating a baseline and understanding how, you know, different lifestyles produce different patterns in the epigenetics. Having everything in that data set from the different microbiome, who's in the microbiome for this particular pet, what was their lifestyle as far as exercise went, what was the food that they ate, were there other stressors in their life, do they have other genes that contribute to whether they have more stress or not. So it's, it is complicated and everything's cross-talking, right? So you have the microbiome and if that's shifting or whatever, it's, cha- it's going to throw a big change across the system of that individual. So I guess the answer is actually being able to have a baseline for an individual would help us a lot with understanding why that individual, although they had no predisposition to heart disease. We weren't really worried about that, but they still got heart disease. What was the contributing factor? And I think there's still a lot of questions out there about how disease develops, and it could be something else. A lot of diseases are caused by our part of the aging pathway, really. So age is playing a role, and that aging process is playing a a role in certain diseases developing. And that's something we want to get at is how each of the environmental factors, whether it's food or it could be something else, is going to contribute to the aging process and then those downstream diseases developing. And reading some papers on heart health and epigenetics, obesity seems to be mentioned quite a bit. And as a nutritionist, obesity is a huge battle that we deal with in the clinic. And it's on the rise, whether we want to believe it or not. Is obesity an external factor that can affect our epigenetics and possibly on or turn off an expression that can affect our heart health that maybe we're not thinking about for our pets? We were on the same wavelength, though, Stephanie, because I was about to say (laughs) that exact same thing. So good nutritionists think alike. You need to get skinnier dogs. (laughs) Yeah. And even you talked about it, too. You helped the beagles get to ideal weight for the study. So, I mean, that that was an interesting thing that a factor that could be playing a part. But it goes to show that it's not, you know, that specific factor, that one thing. It's not even looking at what the food is or what ingredients. It's just like the timing. Again, going back to all these factors, I think it is fascinating, which again is job security for researchers. And I'm really glad that researchers can come together and think about all the different things that could be playing into this. So thank you, Dr. Andrea, so much for your thoughts. Again, we want to have you back, so (laughs) don't go away too far. But before we close, does anyone want to summarize, looking back at this research, there's more research that's coming, but for this particular study, what do you think is some like key take-home points? What does this say? Maybe what doesn't it say that you would like for people to walk away with? So the main thing, the main takeaway from this study as it pertains to dog owners is that grain-free diets 
to really have a beneficial effect on the gut microbiome without having a negative effect on digestibility. So in terms of overall health of the dog, the grain-free diets seemed to do very well in these two populations of dogs, which is very exciting. So as we continue to move forward, just keep in mind, again, nutrition is individual and we can treat it as such. So there's a right diet for each dog. And if that right diet is grain-free for your dog, there's a lot of beneficial effects to it. And same with the amount of animal protein. We did not see anything detrimental with a lower amount of protein coming from animal sources. So as we think about things in the future for sustainability and pet food competing with our food for animal protein sources, it, it doesn't negatively affect to have a little bit more plant protein in your pet's food or in our food. And so to wrap everything up, the major points of this paper is we saw that grain-free diets and grain-inclusive diets are both highly digestible. We also noticed that the fiber content does not negatively affect that digestibility, nor does it tie up taurine, causing taurine deficiency. That's another paper that was submitted and should be coming out very soon that will address that. And we also observed that animal protein, low and high, provides solid amino acids. We were not deficient in any sulfur-containing amino acids, which can be of concern with plant-based diets. And we also noticed that a positive increase in beneficial bacteria and short-chain fatty acids based on the fermentable fibers that are naturally found in pulse ingredients. What we did not observe was a direct causation between grain-free diets and dilated cardiomyopathy or a DCM phenotype, which is it looks and mimics like DCM. All of our dogs remained completely healthy throughout the study. And even now, two years later, we are still getting happy pictures. So these dogs were not negatively affected by 67% pulses in their diet. Thank you for joining us on the Pet Industry Podcast, a BSM Partners production with editing by Cliff Duvenois. Thank you to the podcast team, Dr. Megan Sprinkle, Dr. Mary Cope, Whitney Russell, Dr. Stephanie Clark, and Michael Johnson. If you want to learn more about our family here at BSM Partners, please visit our website at bsmpartners.net. And please make sure you are subscribed to the podcast, tell a friend, and find us here next time.